Hello and greetings. This is Stuart Haynes and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. And if you're a frequent listener to our podcast, you probably noticed that the intro music was a bit different than our normal tune. And that's because we're hosting a podcast series in conjunction with the American College of Clinical Pharmacy Ambulatory Care Practice and Research Network or AMCARE PRN. And this is our fifth episode in the series. Today's episode is a discussion about alternatives to statin therapy or add-ons to statin therapy. While statins remain the cornerstone for the treatment of dyslipidemia, non-statin therapies are often needed as an additional cholesterol lowering or when a patient is unable to tolerate a statin, which is reported in as many as 9 to 10% of patients in a recent meta-analysis anyway. Since publication of the dyslipidemia guidelines in 2018, there's been a number of new therapies that ambulatory care pharmacists should be considering when treating patients. So the ACCP AmCare PRN invited a few experts to join me today. So I'm delighted to welcome our panelists, Dr. Dave Dixon, Dr. Catherine Litton, and Dr. Tomasz Yurga. Dr. Dixon is the Nancy L. and Robert H. McFarland Professor of Pharmacy and Chair of the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Outcome Science at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy and provides clinical pharmacy services and preventative cardiology at VCU Health. Dr. Litton is on faculty at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy, Hook'em Horns, providing clinical services at Community Care Health Center in Austin, Texas, which is one of the largest federally qualified health centers in Texas. And finally, Dr. Yuriga is a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology within the VA Ann Arbor Healthcare System in beautiful and bucolic Ann Arbor, Michigan. So Dave, Catherine, Tomash, welcome to the iFormerX podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to this. Hi, everyone. So we now have several options that are not statins for the treatment of dyslipidemia. However, many clinicians feel a bit overwhelmed when it comes to selecting an agent. So what would be your approach when you have a patient who's already taking a maximally tolerated statin but isn't really meeting their lipid goals. When treating a patient, I first confirm their adherence, which can have a significant impact on their cholesterol levels. Next, I'll evaluate their lifestyle. Therapeutic lifestyle changes, such as having a heart-healthy diet, managing weight, and engaging in at least moderate physical activity three to four times per week, are some of the first-line recommendations for managing cholesterol, among other cardiovascular and metabolic benefits. I'll typically use motivational interviewing strategies to discuss willingness to embrace these lifestyle changes, and that may even include referring them to resources such as nutritionists or community-based cooking and exercise classes. If after this trial, the patient is still not meeting their goals and a non-statin is indicated, I'll begin that discussion with the patient to see if they're interested or willing to take an additional medication. My first choices are generally ezetimibe or a PCSK9 inhibitor, given their cardiovascular outcome data and availability. I also consider how close they are to their lipid goal, their cardiovascular risk, cost and accessibility of the medications, 
and their preferences for oral or injectable options. I'll take into account drug-specific features such as potential interactions and side effects for the patient as well. For example, if a patient is nearing their lipid goal, ezetimibe is a really great affordable and oral option. It lowers LDL cholesterol by 20 to 25% when combined with a statin. However, for patients who require a larger reduction or are at a very high cardiovascular risk and are open to injectable therapy, PCSK9 inhibitors are a good alternative. However, they just may be inaccessible due to cost for some of the patients. So that's another important aspect to consider. I completely agree with Catherine here. I think that we certainly have to address adherence. We know that a large number of patients will actually discontinue their statin over time. And so making sure that patients are persistent with therapy as well as persistent with lifestyle modifications. I, I'd like to add that we should always look for secondary causes of hyperlipidemia as well, whether it's disease states associated with hyperlipidemia, such as chronic kidney disease or certain medications or even dietary changes. And one thing I've certainly seen in the patients referred to me is a number of patients who aren't at goal and have an elevated LDL cholesterol and recently started a ketogenic diet, for example. Uh, I think that those secondary causes certainly have to be addressed. And once they are, I think it's important to really prioritize non-statins shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease first and foremost. So as Catherine mentioned, azetamibe and the PCFK9 monoclonal antibodies have that clinical trial evidence. More recently, benfidoic acid, we can also add to that list of options. And then finally, in select patients with persistently elevated triglyceride levels, we can also consider icosapen ethyl. I do tend to focus on optimizing LDL cholesterol first, though. And then I think it gets into a conversation about the number of medications that a patient is on. And that's really where that individual conversation is important with our patients to determine what's best for them and, and what they can afford. There's really not much to add to all of those points. In my population, there is a lot of hesitancy to a lot of these newer therapies. So having that conversation with the patient obviously is really important to get them on board. But when it comes to getting lipids to their goal, addressing lifestyle, addressing diet is really key. Connecting them with a nutritionist, discussing possible inclusion into a movement program, like an exercise program, is also really key. So Tom, for most patients, we should optimize statin therapy before, before considering a non-statin. But some patients are unable to tolerate a statin. How would you go about determining if, if a patient was truly intolerant and what alternative therapies would you most likely consider? Yeah, this has really been a huge topic of discussion here at the VA because a lot of our patients a lot of them are combat vets. They deal with many pains, chronic pain conditions. So the first thing to point out is that when we talk about using non-statins in patients who are unable to tolerate a statin, we typically focus on things that pertain to pain. So things like statin-related muscle pains or muscle symptoms. The American College of Cardiology does have a really good tool for assessing statin intolerance. There is a little bit of liver-related injury that also comes into question when we talk about statin intolerance. However, that has been shown to not be as prevalent as we, as we once thought. Remember that we used to collect liver panels 
on our patients when we were starting statins. That is less so much the priority nowadays. For me, it's important to establish a temporal relationship between the onset of the pain and then what is the quality of the pain, what is the location of the pain, because all of those points are really important to distinguish whether the pain is new, whether it is possibly related to a statin. We need to rule out whether there were any uh, changes in their exercise habits. We need to address any other chronic conditions that could be contributing to the pain or discomfort or other sorts of things that could be happening. Because many patients don't just complain of myalgias, they might be complaining of cramps. Many patients can be complaining of joint pains, which we know are not associated with the statin. So all of those things are really important to consider. The ACC tool recommends checking other laboratory values like TSH levels to rule out hypothyroidism. They also recommend checking vitamin D levels. We know that vitamin D is not necessarily connected with statin-associated muscle pain. However, we do know that some patients who have low vitamin D may experience muscle pain. So it is important to still nonetheless check those vitamin D levels and if necessary, treat those low vitamin D levels and then have those conversations with the patients about retrialing a statin, giving it another go, possibly holding a statin for two to six weeks to see if the pain does go away. But in any case, if a relationship with the statin and pain is truly established and the patient does condemn the use of statins, let's say they do not want to use a statin, they never want to be on another statin before, let's say they have tried and failed two, three statins, which is recommended to try at least two or three statins, I do have the ability to go to the next level and try either PCSK9 monoclonal antibody or azetamibe. Thanks to the work that I do at the VA, because we, are, we have access to some of these medications, my strategy is to have those conversations with the patients about the statins, and we talk about what are the risks of not taking statins. We talk about what are the benefits of being in a statin and having that protection against cardiovascular outcomes. I think the most important takeaway is to try your hardest to convince a patient that it's possible to tolerate a small dose of a statin, have a really good discussion about the pain symptoms, and then discuss adding on something like a zetamibe or a, a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody to their regimen. One practical thing that I like to do with patients, if I'm starting them brand new on a statin or they're coming to me and they failed other statins and we're trying a new one, especially if they report previous pain associated with taking a statin, is that I like to take a pain inventory and baseline and document exactly what that patient's pain burden is so that I can account for arthritis and other causes or factors that may result in pain. Because I've certainly had patients come back, and I'm sure the rest of my colleagues here have, they come back in three to six months and they associate their right knee pain with taking the statin. It's been helpful in a few cases where I've been able to go back and say, you know, here's the pain inventory we discussed last time. And we talked about that you have osteoarthritis in that right knee. And quite often the patient will then start to understand that, okay, so maybe these two things are not necessarily connected. And recent nocebo studies tell us potentially up to 90% of staph associated muscle symptoms could be related to that nocebo effect. But as we all know, if the patient is truly convinced that the statin is the cause, we can provide more education if they want that education, but then sometimes they are just completely unwilling to try another stat. 
And I think especially in very high risk patients, those that have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, while we may still try to work with them to try to get some kind of a, a statin, even at a low dose on board, we don't want to delay using non-statin therapies because it can take months, potentially a year or two before we ever get that patient on a reasonable dose of a statin. And then meanwhile, they're being exposed to that elevated LDL cholesterol and the associated risk. Ultimately, we want to minimize that long-term risk and get them on some type of therapy to start moving the LDL in the right direction. Luckily, we have a growing body of evidence to support the use of several non-statin therapies now and their positive impact on, on cardiovascular outcomes. However, the results of these studies are hard to compare and some are controversial. For example, the FDA's decision to deny azetamibe an expanded cardiovascular indication or the mineral oil control arm that was used in the REDUCE-IT trial. Could you comment on your opinion about the relative strength of the evidence and the approximate effect size that you think we can expect from non-statin therapies? So it's always surprising to hear the controversy on the azetamibe trial, on the IMPROVE-IT trial and the FDA's decision to deny the cardiovascular indication for azetamide because that does go against our typical practice, right? We typically think of giving azetamide to our patients if they either fail statins or if statins don't prefer enough LDL cholesterol lowering. So it's important to understand that the FDA made this decision based on expert comments regarding the small absolute benefit in the simvastatin and azetamide arm and improve it. That was about a 2% absolute risk reduction in the primary endpoint, which was the, which was the combination of cardiovascular death, major coronary events, or non-fatal stroke. It's also important to point out that in that particular study, there were several flaws, like high discontinuation rates in the first year, especially in the combination arm, while also having high rates of the primary endpoint during the very same timeline. So... This means there was a lot of missing data in the trial, and it's difficult to comment on whether the trial itself would have had different outcomes if everything went more smoothly. Nonetheless, I think it's important to also recognize that we do use azetamide lots in our practice. Regarding the use of icosapod ethyl, regarding the reduced trial, there has been lots of controversy regarding the placebo arm. There have been subsequent studies that looked at icosapent ethyl and its cardiovascular outcomes in patients who need additional triglyceride lowering. So it's interesting to note that there has been a benefit observed in some icosapent ethyl studies, but not the combination studies that we typically think of when we think of EPA, DHA. So that is a long discussion in itself. But one of the things that I wanted to point out with additional lipid-lowering therapy in the form of PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies is that those benefits are a lot more difficult to deny. We're talking about two really strong randomized control trials looking at PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. Fourier and Odyssey outcomes show that these agents have the ability to improve cardiovascular outcomes. So we're not talking about one randomized control trial. These are two hand-in-hand -hand randomized control trials that show that these agents can reduce LDL by more than 50% and they can reduce cardiovascular outcomes. Just to hop in, the recently released ACC-AHA 
and all of the other multi-society guidelines on chronic coronary disease also provides an updated treatment algorithm for using non-statins in patients with chronic coronary disease. The level of evidence for PCSK9 inhibitors and azetamide remain unchanged, but there was a new 2B recommendation for icosapent ethyl to lower ASCBD risk based on the still controversial reduced study. Bimbidoic acid and glycerin also received 2B recommendations, but only for lowering LDL since at the time we didn't have those clear outcome trial data on bimbidoic acid. And we will have to wait another two to three years for that glycerin clinical outcomes trial, Orian 4, to have those results. I think it's important to remember that the statin trials that showed a mortality benefit, many of those trials were conducted in patients with generally much higher baseline LDL cholesterol levels because we didn't have great treatments. Those studies also often had longer follow-up, so four or five years of follow-up. We also know that it's really about the lifetime exposure to elevated LDL cholesterol that's really the primary issue. So waiting to, to lower the LDL cholesterol when someone already has established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and trying to do this when they're in their fifth, sixth, or seventh decade of life, it's going to be more challenging to demonstrate a reduction in mortality, especially in a trial that only has two or maybe three years of follow-up. So I think we have to remember that when we're interpreting the non-statin data that we have. So, uh, of course, the cost of these medications is a really a significant factor to be considered. So what are some of the strategies you found to be most helpful in overcoming the cost barriers? Yeah, so practicing at a federally qualified health center, I primarily treat patients who do not have insurance at all. And luckily, we do have azetamibe on our formulary, and we always, wherever you are, you need to consider your formulary. But there are prescription assistance programs available, and that's what we use for the PCSK9 inhibitors. Unfortunately, there's no PAPs for some drugs like icosapent ethyl or bepindoic acid. And so we're really unable to obtain those drugs for patients without insurance. If our goal is to lower triglycerides, then we can go with Lavazza, which may be a non-formulary option at a higher cost for our patients. But really, if nothing else is available, we might have to defer to recommending over-the-counter fish oils, which really don't have as clear data. They're not regulated by the FDA. They don't have that cardiovascular outcome data like that icosapent ethyl does. But for those who do have insurance, there are manufacturer coupons. They just may still be costly. We've been very fortunate here in that our specialty pharmacy team has really been immensely helpful in navigating prior authorization uh, barriers as it relates to obtaining the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. And of course, now in glycerin, we can also add to that list. We also have to think about the pill burden, polypharmacy. You know, for the longest time, we really were focusing on statin monotherapy because we didn't have a lot of evidence to support the use of non-statins. Now that that's changed, we can expect more and more patients to be on combination lipid-lowering therapy to possibly three agents, which is very similar to how we manage hypertension, heart failure, and many of these same patients are going to have those same comorbidities along with many others. So I think it's important to make sure that we understand what the patient expects or wants from treatment, what matters to them, and then trying to design their medication regimen around that. You know, cost is a very interesting concept here at the Veterans Administration System. I love that all three guests can talk about their different perspectives because we could follow different 
cost models. Within the VA system, for example, PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies are not on the formulary, but we can consider them for use. The cost burden shifts away from the patient and more so on the institution. So pharmacists really practice that cost or financial stewardship here at the VA. So we have to be a lot more judicious with whom we discuss the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. We really try to follow our internal criteria for use, and we rely on good education for providers because a lot of providers might be quick to forsake statins and go straight to the PCSK9 monoclonal antibody. And we have to remind our providers that using a different statin or using a cheaper alternative like azadamide might sometimes be a more cost-efficient option for the patient and for the healthcare system. Do any of you have any experience using the monoclonal antibodies or in glycerin? These agents have to be administered subcutaneously. And I'm wondering if you or some of your colleagues are involved in actually administering these drugs. And how do you bill for that service, the administration of the drug? So we have quite a large number of patients on the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies and Primarily, our patients are self-injecting those medications at home. We do have a couple of patients on inclycerin. It was quite a lot of work, which is an understatement, to, to set up the inclycerin process. It took about six months. And if you're going to do this in your institution, a good reminder here is that inclycerin is billed through the patient's medical insurance, not on the pharmacy side. So that requires some additional coordination with your practice manager. If you have a reimbursement specialist to set up the buy-and-bill model, which is what I think most clinics that are providing inclycerin access are using, where the practice purchases the medication. And then, of course, the patient comes in to receive the injection from a healthcare professional. And so far, we have had a couple of patients come in. I've been doing the injections, especially that initial dose. But then for that day 90 injection with inclycerin, we've incorporated our nursing colleagues and then for that every six-month follow-up visit, I'm the one seeing them, doing that injection, and doing the labs. There is a specific J-code for inclycerin. There are some great reimbursement information available on the inclycerin website for the brand name medication. It's my understanding this is not really designed to be a revenue generator, but it is at least a brief even model. But I do think that it at least opens the door for exploring potential avenues for additional reimbursement or other types of services that could be reimbursed for. So because of the practice of the Veterans Health Administration, the billing aspect is less of a concern for the pharmacist. We do have a large amount of patients on PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, and we have painfully <laughs> rolled out our inclycerin injection practice. So initially we wanted to use it within the clinical visits. We wanted to have our nurse practitioners and, and physicians and pharmacists inject the medication, but because it is a specialty, it did require to be given through the inpatient pharmacy service. So we actually using it during an infusion clinic visit, which is interesting because it is a simple injection. It does not require any vital signs monitoring afterwards. It is really institution specific. Some of our patients were expecting to receive the medication from the outpatient pharmacy and then bring to the office during their visits. And we had to re-educate them and the providers that 
the patients will not be picking up the medication because it's not intended for self-injection. So shared decision-making and patient education are always a key to successful therapy, and certainly it's important in terms of medication adherence. So what are some of the class-specific counseling points or precautions that you like to include in your discussions with patients that you think are particularly important to inform patients about, especially things that are often overlooked by prescribers? I think one kind of interesting side effect to be aware of with bempendoic acid is that it may have some unique side effects concerning blood uric acid levels and tendon ruptures. It may actually increase uric acid levels by up to 14%, and gout occurred in about 2% of trial participants. But mainly this happened in a patient that had a history of gout. So to address this, uric acid should really be monitored at baseline or if symptoms of hyperuricemia occur. Typically, those symptoms would occur within about four weeks of starting bempedoic acid, and effects will reverse after discontinuing the drug. If hyperuricemia does occur, another non-statin option should probably be considered. Of note, gout was not an exclusion criteria to participating in the clear outcomes trial, so there were participants who had gout. So it's not a contraindication by any means if they have a history of gout, just something to be aware of and monitor and make sure to educate the patient accordingly. One other interesting side effect is that while the incidence is really low, it's worth noting that bempendoic acid has been associated with tendon rupture, and that affected about 0.5% of patients within weeks to even months of initiation. Non-modifiable risk factors to consider before starting a patient on bempendoic acid include age being over 60 years old, renal failure, and previous tendon rupture. But there are some potential modifiable risk factors, including corticosteroid and fluoroquinolone use, some of those other drugs that also have this more rare but serious side effect. So the injectables so far have been very well tolerated. One thing that we definitely have to look out for, as with any injectable medication, are the injection site reactions. There are some tips that I certainly share with patients to minimize this. Uh, so for PCSK9 MABs, while they can be stored in the refrigerator, if they're going to be used in the next couple of weeks with biweekly dosing, they don't have to be. But if they are kept in the fridge, it's important that patients not inject cold medication because it will stink. It will hurt. So certainly making sure that it is brought to room temperature. Avoid rubbing the injection site. I've also had patients ice the injection site a little bit before and even after. And in terms of injection site, it certainly can be helpful to rotate sites. Anecdotally, I've seen more reactions when these medications are injected into the thigh compared to, say, the subcutaneous tissue of the abdomen. Volume of these injectables is another consideration. So in glycerin, the first time I saw the syringe, I noticed that the volume uh, is quite large for a sub-Q injection at 1.5 mLs compared to the PCSK9 MABs, which are 1 mL, and of course your standard flu vaccine is only about 0.5 mL. So make sure the patients do understand that they may notice some additional discomfort with the glycerin during the actual injection process, although it is less frequently injected. But again, so far the safety data looks fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today on this podcast, and I want to thank our panelists, Dave, Catherine, Tomash 
for joining me and sharing their experience and their insights. If you are not already a member of the ACCP AmCare PRN, I encourage you to join with a very active email listserv, frequent CE programs, roundtables, and tons of ambulatory care resources on their website. I think membership in the AmCare PRN is a huge value add. As many of the iFormerX listeners already know, the ACCP AmCare PRN was really instrumental in providing some seed funding that got iFormerX going years ago. And the PRN leadership and members have been super supportive of our work over the, over the years. So many thanks to the AmCare PRN for making this collaboration possible. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off.